For as long as we have lived, for as long as we have known, love has carried us. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. The scripture reading is from Exodus 34, 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisagai, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan at Nephatil, the land of Urephim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to you, to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the island of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in the Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs of the wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. And for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of the power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. Elise. Hey, let's give it up for her pronouncing all those names, people. I mean, she just got up here and dropped the mic. So, uh, for those of you who are new, Genesis follows the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a way for us to stay rooted and united with the church universal. As uh, there's four different passages that you can choose from, sometimes it's the gospel. Sometimes it's the epistle, sometimes it's the Old Testament reading, and sometimes it's the psalm. And when I saw that this particular uh, passage, Deuteronomy 24, which, in which we hear about the life and death of Moses, there was no way that I was going to pick any other passage. Uh, Moses, the, perhaps the greatest prophet in the Hebrew Scriptures, we read about his life and his death. And some commentators, in fact, most commentators believe in some mysterious way when we read that he was, no one knows his burial site, in some mysterious way, people believe that God himself buried Moses in the most intimate uh, of acts. And so we read, and the Lord showed Moses the whole land. So this is an all-play question. If you're new around here, we do all-play questions. They're non-rhetorical. 
They're a way to hear the voice of the chorus, which is so much better than the voice of the solo. So when God causes you to see something, what is it that you see? Whoa, Pam, the future. Yes, and there's more. The truth, Fred. Thank you, sir. Hope. Yes. What else? You see what God sees. Wow. What else? Well, maybe an answer you weren't expecting. <laughs> yes, which could be good or bad news. To a question you didn't ask, Jonathan. <laughs> Definitely. Something sacred. Anyone else? All these are beautiful. Much more than I could have come up with. So I think among all the things that were mentioned, Moses is seeing the past, present, and future all at once. If God is outside of time and God shows you something, you're going to see something outside of time, something that's hard to describe. And so Moses, I think, sees a baby boy that was placed by his loving mother into a little raft and floated down the Nile because that little baby boy, who was called Good, was going to be murdered like all the other little baby boys of his time. But that baby boy didn't die. That baby boy was picked up by the daughter of the king of Egypt. <laughs> Plot twist number one. He became a man, a prince, without an identity. And then one day he murdered an Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew slave. Moses knew his identity by that point. He knew he was a Hebrew living in an Egyptian house. And then he fled and he spent 40 years as a shepherd and a nobody in a place called Midian. Anybody know what Midian means? It means strife or contention. Anybody spent 40 years contending with something without an answer? Some of you have, but not most of you. So there Moses is, a shepherd, a nobody, tending with his identity and with God, and then one day he encounters, I will be who I will be, which is how God reveals God's self to Moses, at a burning bush, which was burning but didn't burn up, and then Moses goes to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to lead God's people out of Egypt like you do. <laughs> Moses confronted Pharaoh is a part of calling down 10 plagues and leads the children of Israel through the Red Sea and into another wilderness where he will spend 40 more years wandering and learning about this God who calls himself, I will be who I will be. And Moses has quite a life. And then he sees the present. The children of Israel are about to enter the promised land, but what do we know if you are a good Sunday school student? They're going to go in, but he's not going to go in. Why is Moses not going to go in? Yeah, because he struck a rock, you know. He was 
he had struck a rock before and water came out. And water, by the way, is a huge theme in the life of Moses. He's placed in water. He's drawn out of water. He leads people through water. He strikes a rock and water comes out. He's supposed to speak to a rock and water will come out, but he wants to do it like he used to do it, which is not what God wants to show him. And so he strikes the rock. Water does come out, but God says, in some inexplicable act of punishment, you will not enter the promised land. So that's the present. We read that he has vigor, and we read that he has sight. His sight has not dimmed. If you read 1 Samuel 3, verse 2, you'll read about a different leader named Eli, and we read that his sight had dimmed. What does it mean when a leader has his sight or her sight dimmed? That's an all-play question. Time to retire. retire. Yeah. What else? Say louder, Rachel. They've lost intimacy with God. The very next part of that verse in 1 Samuel 3, verse 2, it says, Eli's eyes had dimmed, but now we're reading about the boy Samuel, but the lamp of God had not gone out. So even if leaders' eyes grow dim, we know that the lamp of God does not go out. And that's good news. Uh, the word vigor means a lot of things. Um, 120 years old, uh, it means that he has not lost the ability to be a father. It also means this word, and I got some help from my friends Joe and Will who work with wood. The word comes from a word that's always described to describe green wood. Now, Joe or Will, what do we know about green wood? Will, you're sitting right there, so I'll pick on you. It's new. Right, so you'd never build a house, you told me, with, with green wood because it would warp and, right? Anything else to add, Joe? Unstable, unpredictable. It, it, and because it carries moisture, right? It hasn't dried out yet, which is why um, the first interpretation is true that I gave. I, I'm, it's in the Bible. I mean, I'm not, don't, don't, I, it is. I'm not, but one of the things that Will uh, and Joe said, one of the ways you can look at it is, here's a 120-year-old guy, but in the eyes of God, maybe God is seeing a rookie. I love that. Another one was, he should be an old man and worn out by now, but he's like a 20-year-old. He's got vigor. This is what we know about present-day Moses at 120 years old, and then the future. The children of Israel will occupy this land, the promised land, Canaan, and they'll be led by Joshua, someone else. Moses' chapter is over, and that's part of what you need to learn as a human being, that you didn't start the story. You won't end the story. It's not yours to do. Your part is to do what Moses did and is to play your part in the story and only you can do it. And Moses was called the most humble person on planet Earth because he simply played his part in the story and he trusted God for his life and for his future. 
and he knew God face to face. So what would Moses be known for? We read about it in verses 10 through 12. Never since then has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all of his servants in his entire land and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel. Now back up to the burning bush, those of you who know the story. When God said, I want you to go to Egypt and lead my people out, how did Moses respond? With confidence? <laughs> no, he's like, send someone else. I'm not, I can't do that. I can't even talk. Talk. <laughs> we read that he was slow of speech. And I've told you that I used to stutter when I was a little guy up until about age 13 or 14. And if you would have told me then you're going to spend your life speaking and writing and using words, I would have said you're just out of your mind. So at the end of Moses' life, he's known for all these things, being unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all of his servants and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power. Remember the time he threw the staff down, it became a snake, and then he picked it up by the tail and then it became a staff again. Remember the time he was praying for the uh, Israelite army and when he prayed, they won. And there's all kinds of weird theological implications to that. That's for a different sermon in a different blog post perhaps. But as he prayed, they were victorious. And when he didn't, they weren't. Moses was known for, so, for parting the Red Sea. But he was also known, and maybe most famously known, for being known by God face to face. So here's an all-play question. What does it mean that God knew Moses face to face? What does it mean that God knew the stuttering nobody that was a shepherd in the wilderness? Oh, I love that, Eric. He knew the real Moses. Amber, he saw his future? Yes. I love that. What does it mean for God to know somebody face to face? He saw his potential. Remember last week, Moses asked God to see God's face. And what did God say? You can't see my face. You can see my back. But now at the end of Moses' life, we read that God did know Moses face to face. So how do we go for a life like that? That at the end of our life, someone would say about us, God knew her face to face. Whew. He knew God face to face. 
in number six, the priestly blessing that I just prayed over Harper. We read this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying this, thus shall you bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So what were Aaron and his sons in the ark of the scriptures? What were they? What class of people were they? They were priests. So this is why this is called a priestly blessing. Moses, you're to bless the priests so that the priests can do what? Say it, Becky. Bless the others. Bless the rest of the nation of Israel and the rest of the world. What does it mean to know God face to face? That's an all-play question. To be present. Thanks, Joe. To, to know what time it is. Thanks, Joe. To know my heart. That's good, Bob. Fred. Now you're, met, now you're meddling. <laughs> yeah, I think it means... When someone voluntarily, joyfully chooses to spend their one and only life serving God instead of serving self. And in so doing, realizes that that is the most fulfilled that a person can be. But I think it's like when we read this blessing, it's like breathing. We, first of all, receive a blessing. The Lord bless you. And keep you, which means to guard you. So that's why we prayed over Harper. Christ before you, Christ behind you, Christ on your right, Christ on your left, Christ beneath you, Christ above you, Christ between you and every person that you come into contact with. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the Lord's countenance upon you and give you shalom. So first of all, we receive all of that. What does it mean to live a life where you receive all of that? I think you've got to be present and vulnerable. Now, I'm going to ask a little bit of a dangerous question. Can you do that alone? <laughs> Fred just laughs. <laughs> you can't do that alone, which is part of why God... Now you're meddling. <laughs> Why would we want to try to receive the face-to-face -face blessing from God by ourselves? If Jesus shows us anything, the incarnated God, it is that God wants to bless us through skin, flesh, blood, that's why in a couple minutes we'll take the Eucharist into ourselves. Here's what we believe about the Eucharist, that it unites all the scattered believers all over the world in the same act, that it's both less than the real body of Christ and the blood of Christ, but more than just a symbol of God's presence. 
So we that's the covenant belief, our denomination's belief about the Eucharist. It is, in a mysterious way, the way we receive the blessing from God into our bodies. Amen? It's a sacrament. It's a visible sign of an inward grace. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of God who called you out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what we read in 1 Peter 2. And this Tuesday, Christians around the world will celebrate the 500th anniversary of our good friend Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door 500 years ago this Tuesday. This is what Luther says in his little work, The Freedom of a Christian. Every Christian is a cleric, and those who are now boastfully called popes, bishops, and lords, or pastors, are in reality ministers, servants, and stewards who are there to serve the rest in the ministry of the word. Servants of the servants of God. So Martin Luther turns that whole thing upside down. The priests are you. The servants of the priests are the people who proclaim the word and sacrament. And in in so doing, when we do it together, even when we're mad at each other, even when we disagree with each other, even when we can't stand the sound of each other's breathing, (laughs) we come together. We serve each other. We show God's face to each other by giving mercy where there could be vengeance, by giving grace, where there could be an I told you so, by listening when all you want to do is explain your position. The body of Christ in this world that is a collection of priests voluntarily, joyfully choose to spend their one and only lives serving God instead of serving self. That's the royal priesthood. Amen? May we be that.